expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome, fellow nerds, to episode 157 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Remember that song, Everybody Walked the Dinosaur? Well, apparently 2017 L.A., that might be a thing now. And, of course, we're talking about the Legends of Tomorrow season finale. And I will say this, if this season of Legends of Tomorrow highlighted anything, it's just how grave an actor Matt Lesher is and how grave a character Eobod Thawne slash reverse flashes right and before we go any further with this we will tell you that we are going to get a little spoilery here so if you haven't watched the finale of legends of tomorrow you might want to skip up to what we're reading because we're going to talk just a little bit about this really quickly because we've got a review of ghost in the shell coming up as well but legends of tomorrow did have their finale and it just looked like first it looked like we we're going to be set up for a red wedding and then we just kind of got set up for a like a real housewives wedding I guess. I don't know. <laughs> It just seemed like there was like more was going to go down, especially after we see Amaya die in the previous episode. And eh, I don't know. I think it was more of everybody's talking about they're going to kill off certain characters. So you're like, okay, there's going to be some finality in terms of character deaths. For example, when it opens up and Ray Palmer gets his heart ripped out by Eobard Thawne, I'm like, okay, Ray is done. Like he's not coming back yeah. at all. Yeah. But. But, again, this being a time travel show, I felt that this is what, something that they did. I felt they took the easy way out by saying, hey, we're a time travel show. We can just kind of, you know, go back in time and kind of like, hey, if, if our, you know, past selves live and our future ones don't die or they die or whatever, it doesn't matter. And it's just the way they did it felt kind of cheap. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of offing characters left and right there towards the end. But it, was, but it was the future characters, and we already knew they were going to disintegrate anyway if they ended up succeeding in the battle. But I'll tell you this, man. I tend to think I'm a pretty smart dude, and I know you are too. I started losing track of who, who was past self and future self, and people are dying <laughs> left and right, and I'm going, should I be upset about this? I don't know yet exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, there's a point where, you know, Citizen Steel gets killed, and I'm like, wait a minute, is that that the past one the way he's talking about it or is this the right. future one i don't know who's what i will say this amaya still being alive after being killed by snart in the doom world episode i'm kind of like it felt a little cheap so i'm kind of like yeah. oh man because that was a real emotional moment for me seeing her die and i'm like oh man she's gone and then yeah. to bring her back in the next episode i'm like oh man that just cheapens to death but as you mentioned, they are now in this 2017 Los Angeles where cities look very futuristic, dinosaurs are roaming the earth still. So it's kind of one of those things where, again, they jump with their uh, – both past and future selves jump together and it causes a time storm. And pretty much that just melds everything into one thing. And so now the next season is going to be them kind of like, okay, we really messed up time here. Now how can we kind of revert back? And – this is kind of, I will say this, this fixes a problem I had in the beginning of the season, actually throughout the season, which was, man, they really don't care about these time, yeah. you know, appar apparitions and these, you know, me messing up time in terms of who's living in what era and stuff like that. Right. And now it's like, okay, 
now it matters. Now they really messed it up. And now, you know, this is part of the Arrowverse. This is 2017. So how will this affect Flash? How will this affect Arrow? You know, and, and, and stuff like that. So we'll have to see. Yeah, and we don't even know that. And that's part of the problem. We don't know what Earth they're on either. I mean, it could, I mean, we don't know how that affects different Earths as well. So they could be on a completely different Earth in a completely different time. We don't know how bad this time quake was. So, but here's the deal though. I mean, I don't know about you, but comparing it to last, the last finale from season one, which I thought was there was a lot of stuff that went down in that finale and it left me excited for season two, uh, my excitement level going from season two to season three isn't nearly as high as it was in the, in the last case. Well, I think because at the end of season one, you had, of course, Our Man show up. And you're like, oh my god, JSA, JSA is coming. And then that's what got you excited about season two. Whereas at the end of this, it's okay, it's more not it's more or less excitement than it is intrigue. About like, okay, now they're on this earth and it's 2017 and there's dinosaurs running around and everything like that. How are they gonna fix time now? You know, they're really deep into the shit in terms of how they messed up time, how are they gonna fix it? So I mean, what we'll to see what happens in season three. And I think that the whole what happened to Rip Hunter thing was a big part of the end of season one as well. So that that was another, you know, who's going to lead the team kind of thing. And now that that's kind of solidified, not that that's a bad thing either, by the way, that's kind of solidified. And I I guess maybe the mystery is in not knowing what the hell they're going to do next season at all. And hopefully they'll drop a few hints at San Diego Comic-Con, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah, man, but something that people do not have to wait for anymore, of course, it's what we're reading. It's coming up next. We have two new comics we're reviewing. Stay tuned and find out which books we decide to review this week. Hi, this is Chin Han from Ghost in the Shell, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's time to fire up that bad signal and pull out our long boxes because it's time to discuss what we're reading this week in James. DC's Rebirth. Of course, talk about it all the time, how great it is. And I said, you know what? A lot of their issues for DC Rebirth are going into the 20th issue, so why not review the fifth part of Tom King's I Am Bane arc in Batman number 20, of course, written by Tom King. David Finch does the pencils. Danny Meeky and Trevor Scott do the inks. Jordi Belair with the colors, and Darren Bennett with the letters. And I will say this. The great part about Tom King's writing is every fight... Batman encounters in this you feel can be his last fight. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And going one-on-one with Bane, fighting him one-on-one, both people are bloody, and the way this final, this this fifth part of this arc goes is they're just all out slugging it out, left and right, you know, just giving it everything they got. Meanwhile, Batman is having this inner monologue of everything that has happened since Batman Rebirth started. And looking up the, it's, it's talking about, it highlights this narration. I'm not going to spoil who the narration is because it is pretty much of a, uh, much of a shocker. So they're going through you know, the whole thing with him on the plane and meeting Gotham and Gotham Girl and, and the whole thing with Psycho Pirate and going to Santa Prisca and stuff like that. Encountering Bane and just this whole arc his head with Bane and Psycho Pirate. And really, this is pretty much, this fifth part of I Am Bane, pretty much is a dissection of Bruce Wayne's war on crime. And he pretty much views this as a way of, 
I wanted this to be my last fight. I he, he This is part of Bruce Wayne's mentality of he wants to die an honorable death, and he wants Bane to kind of give it to him. I mean, that's really crazy, though, isn't it? Although, if you're, and you know, a lot of people would say, well, it should be the Joker. Should it really? Because no. if anybody has gotten into Batman's head more than anyone, in my opinion, it's been Bane. Because not only could Bane match him punch for punch, but Bane has broken his back. He's gotten into his head so much over the years and never mention, really left it, you know? And not to mention, well, especially because earlier on the issues and in the arc, you see Batman you know, goes to his hideout and he sees all the Robins just hanging. Right. And that is a total mind fuck. I yeah. mean, you're seeing Damien, you're seeing, you know, all the Robins just hanging there and that messes with him and it shows, shows how psychotic and how much of a mental disaster Bane can be to Bruce Wayne and Batman. And what I loved about this issue, this, this 20th issue of Batman is this is about, I would say 70% mental and the rest is all physical. Yes, this is all you know twenty plus you know twenty pages of just slugfest. But you have this beautiful narration done by this. And I will only label this person as a mystery character. But you get to who this person is, and you are just like, wow! This whole time, Bruce is talking to himself in a monologue while Bane is pummeling him, stomping on him beating him. Meanwhile, and Batman, while he's giving everything he has, is like, you know what? I feel like I'm going to die and if I'm going to die, I'm going to give this son of a bitch everything I got. So reading this and reading Tom King's wonderful words, I mean, I got like, wow, this could end right here. This could end... Batman can die right here. And if he does, I am totally fine with it because... God damn it, the guy went through a lot in this whole rebirth run, this whole I Am Bane arc, and he's just given everything he's he has, and he has he has no more. He, he literally has no more. It's like literally this whole fight is like the end of the first Rocky movie. Rocky's bloody, his eyes swollen shut, you know, cut me Mick type of thing. And this is just, oh my God, it's brutal. And the artwork is just wonderful. The colors by, by Jordy. Just amazing. Just seeing Bane's mask partially ripped on one side, kind of giving that little bit of a two-faced kind of a look, mm-hmm. you know? And just, I mean, you want an all-out war? And I will say this. You know, we talk about in the Marvel TV shows how the hallway fights are so good and they're brutal and stuff like mm-hmm. that. This beats the goddamn hallway fights. Like, these guys are pretty much fighting in nothing more than the hallway, and they are just beating the fuck out of each other. This is 20 pages of just recap and wonderful narration this is a definite you gotta go out and buy this book it's a poll it should you know hell from the first issue this book should have been in your poll from the beginning yeah if this wasn't in your poll already i mean i with all you know all due respect what is wrong with you i mean yeah. not only not only how great the stories have been by tom but i mean the all-star art and colorists that they've had on this book from the beginning everything works here and to make the statement like you just made that Batman could die and you'd be fine with it after 20 issues says just how good this team has been on this book. Obviously, you don't want it to end after 20 issues, but if they decided to turn that page literally and go a different direction, you'd be okay. That's how good it's been, and that's as as big of a statement to me as anything. 
So what'd you review this week? Well, I mean, I wish I could have the same fervor. As oh, no. Did. But, no, it's not that it's a bad book. It's just that that's, uh, that's a tough act to follow for anybody, right? But, <laughs> so I decided to go with a very, 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 very different story this week from Aftershock Comics. It's Eleanor in the Egret number one, which could not be further from Bane and Batman, let me tell you. But the brilliant John Lehman is involved in the writing, so you can't go wrong there. And Sam Keith, you might remember him from Sandman, actually, so he's involved in the art. Let me tell you this. The vibe that you get from this book, from the art alone, it's a beautifully swept, painted art. It's a, it's a kind of like, kind of like a, a, French, a French art heist caper type book. So you get that very French feel from the art, that painted, wispy look. You know, kind of know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That, that very wispy look. So it's very French. It's very European look that, that it gives. And Eleanor looks like everybody's librarian. Kind of thing. <laughs> well, well, my librarian was a nun. So I went to Catholic school, so. so yeah, so a little bit different. But you know, the the, the French. At, at one point, she's got the French hat, and then another. At, at another point, she's kind of like the nerd in the pet store kind of thing. Yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, it's it's very very different looks. But one of the things I loved about this book so much was not the heist itself. It was the detectives investigating the heist because then this told you kind of where this book's gonna go. It was a very satirical, old yard, French slash Scotland yard. What do you think, Pennington? I don't know. What do you think? And one's got a dog and one's got a cat. And they interact. (laughs) And the animal's very important in this book, by the way. Obviously, if it's Eleanor and the egret. But it was a very satirical thing. And I got a very Dirk Gently vibe from just the whole structure of this, of this, of these characters, right. and how kind of funky it is. You're like when we're watching the Dirk Gently series on BBC America, like wow, this is funky. It's different. It's weird. That's how I felt about this whole book, Eleanor and the Egret, and the interaction between Eleanor and the Egret, if you want to call it that. It is very interesting as well, and and just how this whole story takes place after the heist. I don't really want to spoil anything. It's hard to really get too much of the nuts and bolts of what happens without spoiling anything. But as the investigators are investigating the heist, you kind of see how it's pulled off. And that's very entertaining as well. And there's nothing modern about this at all. It's just very, very interesting and very weird. And there's certain parts of the book where you go, okay, so this isn't at all normal. And that's a good thing. So it feels like, just from what you're telling me, I mean, it has elements of Dirk Gently in there, but also it seems like it has bits of Pink Panther in it as well. Pink Panther, I get a very Monty Python-type vibe from it too a little bit in, in, the, right. in the way that it was rolling along. And at parts, it's funny and it doesn't mean to be, and I think that that's good too, that that it does. it's not trying to push that envelope. As a matter of fact, the very first couple, first couple of pages of the book in the prologue where they kind of get the get an origin, I will say, out of the way. It's done so quickly and so deliberately. It's like, so here it is. And then you're into the story. It was just brilliant the way it was done. And pretty much what it just sounds like is the the delivery of things like the origin. It's very kind of artsy in a sense of like, here it is. And it's just one thing. And then on to the next thing. And it's just, again, it's kind of delivered and written in a funny, satirical way, you know? Absolutely. And and then there's the whole, okay, what's going to happen from here? And there's an interaction about th- three-quarters of the way through the book, and you're like, well, this is certainly going to complicate things. And they make mention of that, and they find out how they're going to do what they do. And then the end of the book, something very 
that very much changes the story and it's funny at the same time. <laughs> so that's why I loved it. And let's face it, I mean, John Lehman does weird well. There's yeah. no doubt about it. He's he's been able to prove that he's done weird well. And this one is a very it's a very different kind of story for him, and I'm sure that he's having a blast doing this. And then the art by Sam Keith is just so it's so gorgeous. You want to flip the page from page to page because you just want to see where he's going to go with it next. It's so gorgeous the way that it's done. So I'm going to be honest, man. This book's funky. It's weird. It's different. It's got a lot of different elements to it. This is a pull for me as well because I enjoyed the hell out of this book. And that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, we dive into futuristic Tokyo with our review of Ghost in the Shell from Paramount Pictures. That's coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's time to go ghost hunting, but in a little bit of a different way because we're talking about the American adaptation of Ghost in the Shell. And Nick, uh, let's just say a lot of stuff went down in this movie. A lot of stuff did go down. Of course, we're this is a spoiler-filled review now. There is a big twist in this, and it's also a controversial twist. We're going to hold on to that and wait. Put that at the we will end get there. of our review. We'll get there. But as you mentioned, a lot of stuff goes down, and it goes down in a very beautiful place, I will say this. If, if there's anything about this movie that was so striking, it's that it's just so goddamn beautiful. Oh, it is. It really is. I mean, and I got I got a lot of Blade Runner vibe, but a more modern version of the original Blade Runner and just how everything looked and how beautiful everything was and what this future could look like. It was gorgeous. It really was gorgeous. Of course, this movie centers around a character named Major, played by Scarlett Johansson, who is a ghost in the shell. They put somebody's brain inside her body, and pretty much she is part of Section 9, a, a cop task force, and Pretty much the whole movie is centered around its amnesia story and her finding out who she really is. Now, I will say this about the story. I feel that there wasn't a lot to it in terms of substance. And there was a moment early on in the movie where I felt like, okay, they're kind of mentioning and talking about, you know, what's that line between fully embracing cybernetics Mm -hmm. and being human and what what is that line how far will somebody you know like hanka go or or industry like hanka go to blur that line and and, i mean this is a story that literally treats cybernetics like drugs like they're walking on the streets and somebody's like hey i got that you know cybernetic eye you need and stuff like that you know a couple hundred dollars or whatever you know I, i can hook you up with it and it's literally like that like cybernetic parts in this movie are so addictive I and mean, it's so to... acceptable, too. Right. I mean, I mean, it's well, like this is the normal thing, just like everybody does it, but it's not the dirty little secret because it's right. right out there in front of your face kind of thing. Well, remember, there's a scene where they're all in that briefing room, and the guy, I can't think of his name, lifts up his shirt. He's like, look, I got a new cybernetic liver, so I can, you know, it's a happy hour all the time. Yeah, Ishikawa. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ishikawa. And so, you know, and, and of course you have Chin Han, we had him last week, as Tagusa saying, you know, hey, I'm all human, humans, you know, I, I prefer to stay that way and stuff like that. So again, they had this nice kind of thing going of, okay, what is this line? And this is where I think that had they used a different nemesis outside of Kuze, if they used Puppet Master, for example, and had this kind of thing of like, 
okay, people want these cybernetic enhancements, but yet you have somebody like Puppet Master who's literally controlling all these people in their cybernetic right. parts. So how far will you go if you know you can be if you're just opening yourself up to be hacked even more? And then I think we'll have presented a much, I think, deeper story, but I will admit, this whole movie, I liked it because even, like, again, the story didn't have a lot of substance to it, but the relationships in it you really did care about. For example, I think that you have Pilo Esbeck, who played Batu. His relationship with Major is very kind of close. I wish to kind of maybe explore that a little bit more. And going back to my theory, I wish they centered more on blurring that line between accepting cybernetics and, and wanting to remain human because yeah. there's there's that part where Batu's talking about, like, he doesn't want him, he doesn't want to be cybernetic, and he has the accident, he has to get the eyes replaced, and the first thing he says is, you know, say something nice, you know? So it's it's it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, you had something here, and I wish you built on it more. It's funny because, you're right, they slowly drifted away from that one so, for so long. At least I would say maybe the first half of the movie you think, okay, this is where they're going to go with this. And I, I like that angle, especially with Kuze and how that's all presenting itself and how that started to unfold. I'm like, this is a good angle. And then all of a sudden, maybe not quite halfway through the movie, but a little bit further from that, you could see them drifting away from that. And, and I think almost right towards the end, I'm going, wait a second, what what happened to that? Why, why aren't we still doing that? Why are we all of a sudden doing this? So I was a little bit disappointed in that. I do, I do think that the relationship between Bautu and... And the major was a was a very special one. I I mean I would go as far as saying uh, Aramiki as well. Ar- Aramaki, excuse me, was another good relationship. Just kind of with the whole team and the major herself was a was another good relationship. But outside of that, I'll be honest, man. I kind of wish they. I mean, there wasn't really a whole lot from any of the other team members. It never really felt like they were a team to me. You know. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the downfalls of this because Ghost in the Shell and the anime and stuff like that is really cop centric it's really team based and i didn't really get that sense it's kind of like if you want to bring up another franchise mission impossible the great mission impossible movies were ones that centered around the team but the bad ones were when it was just you know ethan by himself right and and right. with this it's like man this whole, especially at the end because you have the whole thing where you know they're made now and they're being targeted and i'm talking about section nine the main group of section nine and they're all being targeted to be killed. And you're like, man, they're all coming together and you know having these moments where they're trying to stay alive and just you know staving off these attacks. And it's like, where was this the entire movie? Right. You know. And going back to your part of Aramaki, and as played by, of course, by Takeshi Kitano, he I think stole the show in this. He absolutely did, and he was one of those ones that you go into this movie. In the beginning, and obviously thinking that somebody from Section 9 in the team is going to steal the show, but he really still steals the show. Not only that, like, remember, one of the one of the best parts about the Star Wars prequels was when Yoda finally steps out to fight, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. shit, it's going down. When he's in that car, yeah. and all of a sudden they attack him, and he busts out and he starts kicking ass, I'm like, <laughs> yes. A thousand times, yes. Well, this, that, that was one of the best parts of the whole movie. Well, not only that, but I think he was literally the best Samsonite commercial ever because oh, he totally, his totally, and it's like a bulletproof suitcase that's riddled with bullets, and he's walking out just blasting motherfuckers away with his with his gun. Samsonite like, saved my life. 
<laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where, like, man, and that's the thing too. It's like you know, he's holding the he's holding the the, the 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 briefcase, and he's just blowing people away. And you're like, this dude's just a fucking badass. Yeah, and, exactly. And exactly. I mean, he also had the whole thing like you know, he's just he's the leader of Section Nine, and I mean, he really has moments where he's talking to Cutter, who's the head of Hanka. And he's like, I don't answer to you. I answer to the prime minister. Like he yeah. has pieces of dialogue where he just literally looks at the at the characters and just goes, "Fuck you! I am I'm the person who runs this. Right? You're not the boss of me." And he literally, I think, steals a show. Uh, and I, I love his character. He had some balls too, man. Oh, I mean, yeah. through the whole movie, he had some serious balls. And you know, part of you had, couldn't help but go. All right, what's this old dude gonna do? But at the same, t- and then when you saw him get out there, like, oh, oh shit. he's been laying in the weeds the whole time. He's the secret weapon of Section Nine, and nobody knew until now. But I totally agree with you, man. He was one of my favorites, if not my favorite character in the whole movie. Going to the cinematography aspect of this film, I think that really, when you look at this movie. One thing that really stood out to me is that the director, Rupert Sanders, must have been a huge fan of the anime movie from 95 because a lot of the shots and a lot of the elements were literally lifted from that movie. Which is cool because, I mean, there's a certain amount of fan service there, which I think is when you're doing a movie like this, you kind of need to do, especially if it's been done in that avenue before. you got to give something... For the fans, and I think a lot of movies in the same genre and superhero movies and stuff like that will do those things. Like in Civil War, when you had that scene between Cap and Iron Man where you know he, he shoots the shield and the shield comes up and you get that yeah. iconic pose. You get stuff like that. So I, I totally agree. I think that he was probably a huge fan of that movie as well. And I think it was good to give fans stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean just looking at all these other characters, I want to talk about Kuze for a second because – Again, he he's kind of the one that well, he is the one I should say that really lets Major know like you had a family, you had a past life, and you know it leads into some stuff later on in the movie that's revealed. And Kuze, going back to who I wish they had done with in terms of you know explore making the movie about exploring that line between human and and cybernetics and where do you draw where should you draw the line because. I mean, when he walked, man, it looked like it fucking hurt. I mean, he's like, I know. he. I mean, he is like, what happens when you get too addicted to something? Because, damn, dude, like he is just, wow, like, like, damn. Yeah, and I mean, it, the way that he was just so jacked up, like you said in this movie, especially once you finally get the full reveal, you know, robe is off, you kind of get the full reveal, and you're like, uh, the only thing that kind of sucked was because since he's supposed to be like one of the quote unquote bad guys. I feel like I felt for him a little too quickly. I felt like they could have dragged the evil out on him a little more, but I guess what their their point was is that maybe he wasn't the bad guy in this, even though he was killing innocent people throughout the entire movie, and you end up kind of feeling for him uh, at the end. I will say this. As badass as he was controlling people, remember when we watched the season one premiere of Mr. Robot and it didn't really want make you want to get a smart house anytime soon? Yeah. Don't want to get a cyber brain anytime soon with the stuff that this guy was able to pull off. So it's like it's like Jaws. You're not gonna get you're not getting to get in the water anytime <laughs> soon. I'm not gonna get uh not looking for any genetic enhancements anytime soon. What I liked about this movie before we get to that that twist in the third act, what I liked about this movie was it showed the dark side of science fiction where you see a lot of futuristic science fiction and you're like, oh, cool, here's a car that drives itself. Here's, you know, they can, oh, wow, they can 
have this technology where they can, in Minority Report, where they can figure out murders and crimes before they happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they have all this cool technology and really this really you know beautiful side of futuristic technology and, and just discoveries. But then you see these geisha bots and shit crawling up like spiders up the walls, and you're like, yeah. I'm fucking good. Like, you know, yeah. I, you know, it makes me not want to rush into the whole uh, replacing my liver or completing my body and giving myself yeah. a right arm, you know? I mean, this, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really <laughs> make me want to, you know, embrace technology even further going forward. Yeah, it's a little difficult after seeing this movie to want to get anything like that done because when somebody else can just hack into it and control it, suddenly it's not so fun. Like that poor bastard, they, 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 he took over his brain and uh, when they tried to kit, uh, kill uh, Dr. Roulette there that, that yeah. first time, and then the guy has no idea what happened, and he thought he had a family that he didn't really have. Oh kind of thing. And man, that, that was brutal, dude. Yeah, when he was the when he was the guard, you talk about the garbage man. Yeah, yeah. well, that was a, well, that was a very pivotal scene in the anime. Like that was just that in the anime. That's such a a literally a a um, really emotional moment, and the fact of like, wow, this guy thought he had a family he thought he had this and it turned out being false and everything like that and it's just again drawing that line of what happens when you blur the lines between cybernetics mm-hmm. and and real life and that i think they wish they they built on and you know now we're gonna get into that territory that has a lot of people talking james of course dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah and of course it revolves around the casting of scarlett johansson there was that whole whitewashing controversy with her and you know going into this and I will say this, going to this movie, especially I think when the movie was being cast and it was announced that it was happening in the first place, I think it's safe to say, it's fair to say, you and I had the idea and the concept of, I mean, this is kind of the way we look at things where we don't fast react to things. We're more of the, let's go see the movie and then let's have that approach and see what we saw, you know, and, and talk about what we saw and, and stuff like that. And of course, in the third act, it's revealed that, hey, this isn't Mira. This is Motoko Kusanagi from the actual anime, and you put a person who is Asian's brain in a white shell, and that had a lot of people upset. And I will say this: going into the movie, my mindset was, my guess is seeing Doctor, ever seeing Doctor Strange, they're going to handle it in that kind of a realm where this is more of a cultural, you know, everybody from different places, you know, coming together in, in one place. And that kind of explains everything. And the way that I was looking at that was just of that mindset. But when they go to the point where she meets Matoko's mom and it's revealed that, yeah, Major is her daughter. Um, I can see why people were upset with that. I can see why people were upset by the casting because to me – it felt like they were about to clear the fence on that. They were about to, to not make this thing. They are about to, to, to dissolve it and everything like that or just diffuse the, the tension there. And they ended up doing a move and revealing something that really sh- shot the movie in the foot. Here's the deal. I'm going to take it from a little bit of a different perspective on that particular story. Um, I understand why you did that because you were trying to humanize her more and kind of push her even more to that direction that you wanted her to go and ultimately led to what happened at the, at the end of the movie and how the climax happened. 
But you didn't. You didn't need to do it that way. It could have been executed a completely different way. And I think I understand what you were trying to do. I just think you took the wrong approach when you were trying to do that. It was an unnecessary, actually two unnecessary scenes in the whole movie because you could have gotten it there a lot faster. And obviously what they want to do here is they want to build a franchise and you want to keep Scarlett Johansson. Who wouldn't want to keep Scarlett Johansson? She's a big name actress. Her movies typically make a ton of money. Everybody knows who she is. Of course, you're going to want to keep her in the role. And that's not a problem for me. What the problem was is that you did something that was totally unnecessary. Right. And and it could have been told a completely different way. And you could have avoided it. You could have avoided the entire thing. Or you could have kept pushing it to the side and let let people go back and forth for years about this on Twitter or whatever we're going to have later on down the line. Let people question this forever. You could have just left the door open, but instead you tried to peek through the door and it got slammed back in your face. Well, not only that, not only did they do it once, they did it twice. Right, because, that's my. That's what I was because, trying to say. Yeah. Because Kuze ends up, oh, his real name is Hideo, and he's a white dude. And again, it's one of those things where what really, outside of their actual names, what really shot this movie in the foot in terms of just this whole reveal and this whole controversy was when they had that scene where they're being taken away when they're kids and they're Asian actors. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Like, like what? Like, like, come on, really? Like- well, and, but here's the deal. Even that would have been okay because what they could have done was explained that very easily in a short scene of saying, well, you know, Cutter... Just can put take take the brains and put them in whatever shell he wants, and this is what he decided to do. You want to do that for give us that two minute piece of information. This whole problem is kind of goes away because there's your anger right there. Plus, you look at this movie; it made nineteen million dollars opening weekend on a budget of over a hundred million dollars, hundred ten to be exact. No. This is just going to be a one no. one movie. And I think a big part of it was I saw this on Twitter, I saw it on Facebook, and, and just read it on comment sections and stuff like that, where people were like, wow, they were getting ready to go see the movie, but then they found out about that third arc twist, and they are like, man, I'm not going to see it. And that's what I think hurt it the most, is because they did it the way they did. Again, I think that there was just different ways they could handle it. And again, going back to the whole Asian actor thing, I think that, you know, my take on it is, you know, we talk about, oh, and you see it online, oh, who, you, oh, you want that name, you want that name. Well, you know, we, we can build these names of Asian actors by giving them roles, you know, in these things, in these yeah, movies. Yeah, but that's a, that's a completely larger discussion. I mean, that would have to start probably not in this movie. Let's just face it. This is a Western adaptation of a Japanese manga. There's this is not necessarily the place to start that I don't think. I mean, I know that there are plenty of anime fans and you anime fans, I'll give you credit. You are a vocal bunch and you love what you love, but what you need to understand and you can tweet me all you want on this is that contrary to popular belief in America, anime is not the most popular thing in the world. It's just not. Can we just say that? Can we admit that there are a lot of very popular anime properties that people love? But at best, it's a cult following, and it's not something that everybody knows. And you better be damn sure when you make a movie or something like that, 
that you get the general public that is not necessarily a huge fan of the genre in that theater. Because if you don't, you are going to get nothing more than one movie every time. And, you know, as much as we kind of went back and forth on all the stuff that we we wish that they would have done at the same time, it was a pretty good movie. I mean, if you, I, I like the way that they executed the vast majority of it. Like you were saying in the beginning, visually stunning in almost every way. I like the way that they gave a nice story about, about Batu. I thought that the dog thing really humanized him and gave him a side and the way that they had the relationships between Major and a couple of the characters that we talked about before was really nice. I just wish that we would have seen a little bit more from the rest of the team. I wanted more of a team dynamic. I really thought that that's what we were going to get. Some of the twists that they had with like uh, Dr. Roulette and Major and when she finds everything out and when she starts to turn that corner – I thought could have been maybe a little bit more meaningful than they were. It didn't give me that emotional reaction that I kind of thought it would, even when you kind of see it coming. Um, I thought Kuze was good, not great. I think that visually it was more, uh, it it was better for me than it was uh, emotionally and the way it was executed. I thought the cutter, maybe you could have made that turn a little bit sooner, even though you kind of knew he was the son of a bitch throughout the whole movie anyway. But to make him more the heavy than Kuze, I thought would have been a little bit better further into the movie, but at the same time, I enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was great, and um, I don't think we're going to be seeing any more of these, so at, given all of that information, ah, let's see. I'm going to give this six giant holograms of people doing squats out of ten. <laughs> well, I will say this. The movie... While, again, the story didn't have a lot of substance to it, I do wish they did some other things with the story. It is very visually beautiful to look at. And this is a movie where I think that if I was home and I was just, you know, wanting to watch something, I would watch this on Netflix. I don't think I would rush out to the theater and see this in the theater. I think I would wait for it to hit Netflix and just watch it. Uh, I think that in terms of when you compare this to the to the animated movie and the anime films... I believe that I would prefer watching the anime just because it's just certain parts of the anime I like more than the way that they did it in the movie. But overall, I liked it. It wasn't I wasn't bored by it. It's a two-hour movie. Nowhere did I sit and look at my watch and like, oh my god, how much longer is this going to be? I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 Geisha Bots. Okay, I could see giving it a 7. I could see that. Well, I mean, like I said, it wasn't a bad movie. It's just no. I wish there were some things that they could have done differently that would have improved it. Uh, I And also, again, going back to the whole twist in the third act, I can see why people are really pissed at, at, you know, at this film and just how it ended because it really ended in a way that was unnecessary and it made a twist that was really unnecessary. The, the, the bummer for me was pretty much the not following up on the where's the line between cybernetic right. and human. That, that was the biggest bummer for me. I wish that they would have followed up on that more and kind of would have made that whole third act point a moot point. You wouldn't even had to do it if you played up that angle a little bit more. So that, that's the bummer for me. And I totally agree with you. And coming up next, it's Nerd News, and we have a bunch of stuff to talk about. Stay tuned. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's time to hit the power button on our gaming consoles because it's time for what? 
Nerd News! And our first story is the biggest story of the week, of course. It was announced last year at E3 that Project Scorpio from Microsoft was going to be coming out for the holiday season. And they released this week, James, some specs about the Project Scorpio. Before I hand things over to you, because you are the ones that really do deep dives on this type of stuff. The memory, I want to talk about the memory real quick. So the Project Scorpio specs for memory is a one terabyte hard drive, 12 gigs of RAM memory. The Xbox One only has eight gigs. Now that memory is going to be divided up in terms of eight gigabytes of memory. We're going to be for games, four gigabytes for accessories. And I would believe that's going to fall into the apps category as well. The Scorpio GPU, 4.6 times as powerful as an Xbox One, uh, six teraflops, eight CPU cores. Projected price tag is $4.99. And then when it comes to games, titles outside of the Forza 6 game that they tried this out on appear to be going not a full 60 FPS, a full, but they're going to be going at 30 FPS unless they're patched to be 60 FPS compatible. And I just wanted to go back to the memory real quick before I think, turn things over to you to do this deep dive on all this, this console stuff. We live in an age of constant updates in day one, day 10 patches. As long as the game servers are up, many, many patches are going to be installed. And in today's day and age, a, terif- a terabyte of memory is not a whole lot. And so when... I talked about this on a previous show where you know I had to delete a couple games to install a new game. So even though it's a terabyte, this isn't 2006 when terabytes were like, oh my god, it's so much memory. Because now it's like, we live in this age of constant updates and stuff like that. And more games are coming out. There are much bigger files and demand more of the system. So it's going to have you know, 20, 40 gigs per, per game. And so... Memory can be deceiving. And with that, I turn things over to you, James, to really take off the shell of these consoles and just do a deep dive real quick. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at what we've got for specs here, especially when you're comparing them to the PS4 Pro, which came out recently, I mean, if you look at the CPU alone, I mean, you're looking at 2.3 gigahertz compared to 2.1 gigahertz for the PS4 Pro, but they're also running it. They're not running the Jaguar anymore. They're going to run the X86 core, which is a little bit newer, so that's going to be a little bit faster. And one of the things that they really talked about was decreasing load times on games. That's why you have the 326 gigabytes per second memory bandwidth. That's going to make things pop up a little bit faster compared to the 218 gigabytes per second that the PS4 Pro has. Also, you want to talk about frame rates. You mentioned that before. This is definitely going to have an optical 4K UHD digital drive, which is also going to make the frame rates go up because Microsoft also said the backwards compatibility tiles and the older Xbox games are going to run smoother now. Well, of course they are because you've got 4K optical support now. Not only that, you look at that memory, that four extra gigabytes looks like it's a good thing for the RAM. And again, that's going to help you with the frame with not losing frame rates and stuff like that. But A, those four being for something else makes a difference. And if that's all they're going to have for streaming, that could be a problem too as far as whether or not that's going to be able to really be able to support the streaming aspect. So if you're looking at this, just comparing it to the Xbox One, it looks like a giant step forward. And it absolutely is, and that's all well and good. But at the same time, you look at this and you say, 
there are improvements over the PS4 Pro, especially with the memory bandwidth. I think that's the biggest thing. The biggest difference I see here is that memory bandwidth because you've got for the for the graphic processing unit, you got 40 customized computable units as opposed to 36 for the PS4 Pro, which isn't a ton. I mean, I know it makes a difference, but it's not a ton. So the biggest difference here is the memory bandwidth because one of the things that Microsoft said in this presentation when they unveiled this is one of the things we really want to do is decrease the load times that we have. They want faster load times, more consistent frame rates, and I think they're definitely taking a good step forward in getting that for everybody. I'm just worried about because people think, oh, well, I'm going to be able to stream in 4K. That is not true. That is one thing that they've said on here is that it looks like the streaming is going to be localized 4K only, not streaming 4K, but think about the bandwidth you would need to stream 4K anyway. So I'm not sure that that's a huge deal, but as far as the breakdowns, that's the way I see it anyway. And I think that, you know, when you look at all this hard drive, you look at these specs and everything else, and all this hardware that goes into these consoles, and you look at the numbers, and you're reading reading in an article like, oh, it's going to be 4.6 times powerful in terms of the GPU, but then when you really break down the numbers, you're like, well, that's only like 30 more than the PS4 Pro. And, you know, you're kind of getting down to kind of that... It's more. I mean, it's, I would say it's going to be the most powerful console on there. Sure. But yeah. but but another avenue we have to look at this too is okay. So you're going to spend a hundred dollars more on a Project Scorpio, which has more computing power, more everything. It's pretty much just looking at what this is going to be. It's going to be basically a computer version of a console, basically. And you're like, okay, well, what games can I play on it? And that comes yep. to the big problem. What exclusives does Microsoft have? They don't have a lot because they're going to have, oh, we have Scalebound, and that got canceled. And so you look at what PS4 and Sony has. They have Horizon. They have MLB The Show for you sports gamers out there. I'm one of them, and I know you are, James. Mm-hmm. And just all these different various exclusives that they have, Uncharted. And if you want, I would even... Th- Possibly throw Tomb Raider in there, even though Microsoft had it, but it's a timed exclusive. So going forward, I think Square Enix and Crystal Dynamics saw the backlash they got from partnering with Microsoft and making giving Microsoft the keys to the car first and not making this a Sony exclusive title. So I think that going forward with any Tomb Raider games, which are going to be more given the way that uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider ended, I think this is going to be you're going to be looking at more Sony exclusives. Plus, don't forget what Sony is bringing back. Remember, Microsoft a while ago they had the rare classics that they brought back. Well, Sony now you have the Uncharted collection, you have the new Crash Bandicoot collections coming out too. So when you look at just what the library is, if you're just a gamer, even if you're a casual gamer or a hardcore one like us, Microsoft doesn't have the quite the lineup that Sony has, especially in terms of titles that are their own exclusives i mean of course people bring up always the usual suspects they bring up the gears of war they bring up the halos but really i'm sorry halo hasn't been good since halo 3 gears of war 4 wasn't really the best i would say and really it's kind of like well look what sony's doing sony's giving new exclusives whereas microsoft's doing more sequels here's the deal here's one big matzo ball that's hanging out there as far as exclusives go and i think it's a big deal uh, how about Spider-Man? Yeah. That's a big one. I mean, you want to talk about all those other games, that's that's all well and good too, and I totally agree with that. Spider-Man not being on the Xbox is a big, big deal. And if we're talking future Marvel games as well, that's a lot of money lost. And that's a lot, and people will factor that in 
when they're thinking about buying their new console. And here's the other problem. PS4 Pro was just an extension of the PS4. It's like, right. okay, we know that you need... You, we know that you need the process. We know that you need things to be a little bit better for your PS4. So here's a different version of the PS4. So PlayStation hasn't even unveiled what we know will be coming soon, and that is their new console. So it seems like almost for the last what seven, eight years now, Microsoft has always been playing catch up with Sony. So Microsoft always shows their hand first. Say, here's what we've got. And now Sony can dissect all of this information and say, okay, how do we make this not just better, but 10 times better than what they have now? And I don't even look at 4K support as a big deal. I don't even see that as a deal breaker for, uh, and that's one of the two things that they really seem to have over the PS4 Pro. PlayStation's going to have 4K support soon enough, but 4K is not an industry standard yet. I don't even think it's even close to an industry standard. Plus, what Microsoft's really trying to do here, I think, is they're trying to get PC gamers to buy consoles. And do you know how much of an uphill climb that really is? I don't think... Oh, yeah. For anybody that's not really inside the video game world and inside the mind of gamers, PC gamers are some of the most loyal people you will ever meet, and they will spend thousands of dollars on their gear to make sure they have radiator-cooled PCs that can run top-of-the-line games at their peak performance. And that's really, really hard to compete with if you're in a console, which I know will probably be a good five, six, seven hundred bucks cheaper, but again, there's that loyalty factor, and there's the fact that people are willing to pay to get the absolute best they can. And something that I like that you mentioned, James, about the PS4 Pro is that it was more of an arm of the PS4, pretty much the 4S iPhone to the f- Apple's you right. know, iPhone 4. We haven't seen a whole PS5 or PS whatever. And this is the thing. This is the new ushering in of technology and consoles where I think you're, what you're going to see is you're going to see more people. Granted, I've been GameStops and I've seen people go and buy PS4 Pros and stuff like that. But what I think we're going to see is you're going to see consoles use things like Scorpio and PS4 as kind of springboards into that next generation of gaming. And it's, whereas people, are, some people are probably viewing Scorpio and even the PS4 Pro as, oh, this is like the next, like the PS5 and like the Xbox 720 or whatever the fuck, or Xbox 2. That's not that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a bridge to get to that next, you know, thing, like how far has technology gone? Right. And so I think that people are, might be misjudging what these things really are supposed to be. And I think that what we're going to see is we're not going to see a whole lot of these systems really, really sell in the bunches that Xbox One and PS4s have sold in, primarily because maybe pricing's a thing, but it's also the idea of, you know, kind of going back to the computer thing. If you spent thousands of dollars on a PC or even just hundreds on a new system, and then they announce a new system coming out for the pretty much the same price or $100 more than what you paid for for your console you just got you won't want to go out there and trade in because you're going to lose money on the trading value and stuff like that mm. and so i think that that's what you're going to see i think you're going to see a slowdown and i think it's going to be more of a testing out period for these new consoles before we get really a new era of consoles and uh and going back to the library thing in terms of games that's why i could have bought a nintendo switch last week but i didn't because the library 300 dollars, i don't get a lot for what i pay for right and that library is going to be a pretty big deal but here here's one of the other things too is that 
we've kind of reached the point in gaming now, I think, that, you know, the drastic change from going from a PS2 to a PS3 was so drastic and yeah. it was so much more beautiful. That's why those units sold so quickly. And I think that's a good point that you brought up. I think we've kind of reached the point to where how much better can we really get? It's already pretty damn beautiful as it is on a PS4 and even Xbox One. And I'm not saying Project Scorpio is not going to be awesome because it looks good and it's a very good step forward for, for Microsoft. But at the same time, how much better can it really look? And yes, 4K looks a lot. It looks really, really good. But you still get really, really good quality, I think, from Blu-ray quality video as well. So you're taking that next step in a way, but it's not a, it's not the giant step to where you're seeing yourself going from the PS2 to the PS3 or the Xbox to the Xbox 360 kind of thing. It's just, There's just not that drastic jump, and I think that's one of the bigger things that's not making consoles sell by the, by the thousands and thousands and millions anymore. And speaking of video games, James, we're staying in that realm, and Persona 5... You know, is a a monstrous game. Came out four months ago in Japan. People over here in America love it. That's all I'm seeing people talk about right now. But a lot of people are talking about for a very controversial reason. And this being, of course, Atlas USA posted on their site a note to streamers. You know, I stream on Twitch. Other people I know stream as well. We're just talking about streamers with the whole Project Scorpio. But they're asking people to refrain from posting spoiler-filled videos. Now, this note said. If you stream past 7-7, which is July 7th, in the calendar of Persona 5's school year, which is one-third of the game, not three-quarters, one-third, you become at risk for content ID claims or a channel strike and account suspension. Here's the deal, man. This was posted by Atlas USA, by the way. Game streaming has become something that... I can't even say I ever thought it would reach. I mean, it's really gotten to an amazing, amazing place and how many people actually pay attention to it. And I think it actually enhances someone's want to purchase a game or not purchase a game based on what they're streaming. Now, here's the thing. If you've got a strong product, I think you stand behind it, let people stream it, whatever. But at the same time, Atlas is kind of discounting that, yeah, sure, you might see stuff, that happened in a game or something like that. But at the same time, I'm one of those people, and I know that you are too, Nick, and I'll let you talk on this here in a couple minutes because I know you want to get into it. I would rather play it myself, even if I've already seen it, and experience it on my own than watch it and say, well, now that I know what happens, I don't need to buy the game. Well, I will say this. As somebody who does stream and as somebody who actually does go on YouTube and watches playthroughs and stuff like that, I'll watch a playthrough mostly because... You know, I, I, I want to see the super cut when people take the cutscenes, put them all together and make the one giant movie. Or if I'm stuck in a certain area, I'll go, th- you know, search a playthrough and say, okay, how can I get out of a certain area? How can I solve this one puzzle? I've been on the same puzzle for like an hour. <laughs> I want to progress in my game. I will say this. I understand the not want of, of, of spoiling stuff, but you got to understand, especially as a developer, people stream things not at their own risk, but people watch streams, I should say, at their own risk because it's like, well, if you haven't seen a gameplay before, obviously you're going to be spoiled at what happens. You know, it can be said like just by playing the opening, you can spoil the opening. I don't, you know, I don't know, but it depends. Here's the thing, and here's the problem with it. By telling people you can't go th- stream past 
this certain date, what it does is, you know, some streamers get paid for for streaming, some of them are Twitch partners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You're affecting their bottom line because some people are saying, I know some people that kind of build their streams around certain games. So if they couldn't stream those certain games or they can stream those games up to a certain point, that's affecting their bottom line, that's affecting their viewpoint of the developer, and it's affecting their want to buy the developer's games. Right. So I think that going forward, this is just this is I same the same thing I see with Nintendo, where you have one little thing of Nintendo footage in there, Nintendo boom, copyright strike and and, and, and stuff like that, and your stuff gets your channel gets suspended and everything else like that. It's very bullish of developers right. to do this. And not only that I'm just going to put this out there, man. At what point do these developers, and and, and this goes for almost anything. We'll go TV and movies for this as well. Right. The the second that something comes out, it is on you, the consumer, the viewer, or whoever, to avoid spoilers. Yeah. You know, going on social media is not something that we absolutely positively our God-given right to do every day kind of thing. You know, you don't absolutely positively have to go on social media unless that's your job. But then, so but, but you then have again, to be able to avoid these spoilers, especially if it's past a third of the way through the game. I mean, that, that seems like a lot of gameplay to me. You know, yeah. so you got to, you know, just chill a little bit. I mean, you don't want people to reveal the ending after like the first week. Maybe I get that. But after a couple of days... You should be all right. I don't understand what the big problem is. And if you're watching a Twitch stream, you can't get all pissed off about people revealing stuff that happens in the game because you're literally watching the stream to watch gameplay. I look at this and I'm like, what are these developers doing by by limiting all these this gameplay that people can show and everything else like that? And it's, they don't do they not understand that they're hurting themselves or making themselves That's the look bad. And you know, you mentioned the whole thing about going online spoilers. Yeah, it's our job. I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Yeah, it's our job to stay away from social media. But I will say this: you, you don't expect going on social media after to use a show reference, Legends of Tomorrow's finale airs, and all of a sudden the first thing you see from a news company is like, Legends of Tomorrow, blank dies, you know? It's like... Yeah, well, don't be a dick either, like, you know? Like, I mean, you know, five <laughs> minutes after the show's over. But, I mean, I understand what you're doing, but I understand what you're saying, but there are other reasons why people go on social media, too, to check in with family during certain disasters and stuff like that in terms of natural disasters and they right, can of course, and stuff like things, that. These things but, can be avoided, yeah. though, is my point. Oh, they can, but it's just... Part of it's just like... It's it's on it's on us, but it's also just again don't be a dick kind of thing. It was angering I think to a lot of people, especially myself. Is this game's been out for four months in Japan? Right. Okay? I mean, come on, come on. So so come on, like like who are you really? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like 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 who are you really spoiling this for? It's not like it, it's just out of one country. It's out in I believe multiple countries now, and so it's just. Like what? Like what? Like what's the point of all this? And, and you know what? You can't make the gap between releases in one country and the other that large if you want people to avoid spoilers. Okay, right. you just can't do it because anybody that was jazzed about this game that lives here in the states is already has already watched streams of it in Japan. 
Yeah. They they already have, or they more than likely, if they really want to know what's going on, what's going to happen, they already know. So just puffing your chest out and doing this, it doesn't matter. Plus, you you want to take it a step further, then then you're going to have to police people on Twitter and on Facebook and all these other things because spoilers in in the written written form are just as spoilery as seeing what happened to me anyway. I mean, it's spoilers are spoilers. And our final story deals with, of course, the big M, that being Marvel and. Something their VP of sales, David Gabriel, said recently, uh, he was at, I believe, a, a, a conference, and he said that readers were sticking to their old favorites, and he's talking about the whole decline of sales for Marvel, and what he said was, what we heard was that people didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters out there. That's what we heard, whether we believe it or not. I don't know that that's really true, but that's what we saw in sales. Any character that was diverse... Any character that was new, our female characters, anything that was not a core Marvel character, people were turning their nose up. Fuck you, first of all. Second of all, don't say people didn't want diversity and then say, I don't know if that's really true. Fuck you. Yeah, you either know or you don't. Yeah. Come on. Don't say. And saying that I heard something is much different than saying... I was told something directly and cite a reason, a source as to the sales numbers. And here's the thing. Marvel, people don't hate diversity. We love diversity. We read a lot of books that have diverse characters through varieties of different publishers. Maybe own up to your shit and write better books, draw better art, and not fucking shit all of your characters. And here's the thing, too. The writer of Miss Marvel, G. Willow Wilson, responded to Gabriel by saying, quote, Diversity as a form of performative guilt doesn't work. Kill-. And then when it came to talking about how Marvel introduces new iterations of fan-favorite characters, Wilson wanted to say, quote, Killing off or humiliating a character? Who wants a legacy if that legacy is shitty? Right. That, is the, that is not just somebody off the street. That is not just us as readers. That is somebody who is writing Miss Marvel Kamala Khan saying, you done fucked up, Marvel. Yeah, and you can point to Bruce Banner, the Hulk, I think. Oh, is my a God. Main, very much big-time main point of what, that was, of what was said there. And this actually happened in the Marvel Retailer Summit, which was covered by uh, ICV2. Now here's the deal, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Tom Cruise here for a second from one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men. It doesn't matter what I can what I believe, it only matters what I can prove. So it doesn't matter what a couple of retailers may or may not have told Marvel about why they think the books aren't selling. It only <laughs> matters what the truth is and what you can prove. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I think we all know. That that's not true based on anybody that's even tried to read a Marvel book in the last year and a half. What you're doing is is you're not just trying to be diverse. You're taking your classic characters. We've said this a thousand times. You're taking your classic characters, characters that generations of people have grown up loving, including a younger generation that's growing up right now. You're taking them, balling them up tossing them into a corner and saying, oh, by the way, here's that exact character 
absolutely different in presentation. Not a new character, mind you. And that's the other thing that they said. And I'll paraphrase this because I don't have the exact quote in front of me. Like, every new character that we tried to create also wasn't received well. And I'm like, what fucking new characters would these be? Because as far as I'm looking at, and I'm looking through your titles, anything outside of Star Wars, uh... Exactly which new characters are you discussing about creating? Can somebody clue me in on that? Because I've really only, I can really only think of maybe one or two off the top of my head as far as new characters. You know, female Thor is not a new character. Riri Williams, not a new character because you made her Iron Man. Not anything else. You made her Iron Man. If you made her a version of Iron Man and called her something else, like when you had Rhodey and that was Iron Iron Patriot or something like that, that's different. But you made her Iron Man. You made Captain America a Hydra Nazi. You told... And not only that, you executed these stories very, very poorly from what I've seen. So don't go out there and wag the finger at your retailers or wag the finger at the consumers when you know darn right well for the last three years you've been sitting high on the hog, you've been beating everybody down, laughing at DC sitting at second and third place, and then Rebirth comes along and all of a sudden you feel like you've got to scramble. So because you sat on your laurels and you rested and you feel like, well... Life's good, and you kick back in your friggin' chair and just pump out whatever you think you can because it was selling. Now, all of a sudden, people are starting to catch up. You're panicking, and you just realized you've got nothing. It's pretty much what Marvel's been doing the past three years, is, as you said, puffing out their chest and really bullying these other publishers around, like, oh, we're the best, da, da, da. But then as soon as DC Rebirth comes out and socks Marvel right in the face, Marvel immediately plays the victim card. Marvel takes no blame for what they did. And speaking of DC, this is why Rebirth works so goddamn well. Because DC looked at the new 52 and said, yeah, a lot of this doesn't work. A lot of this was pretty bad. We're sorry. Here's Rebirth. And they accept it. What made Rebirth such a wonderful thing to read and made people want to go out and get new books outside of the creative teams, DC owned their shit. They said we knew we were putting out wasn't the best, you know, in terms of sales and what people really wanted. Here we go. We're bringing everybody back to how people love them, you know, bringing everybody back to their roots. And what do you get? You get a lot of top 50 comics in terms of sales and and units sold and moved and stuff like that. Marvel, the reason why Marvel sales are so up in terms of, I want to talk about the retailers. We know retailers here. What What are we told a lot? Oh, in order to get a certain variant cover or whatever, Marvel has certain standards where you have to buy. You are forced mm. to buy a certain volume of a certain number of comics. Even if the certain comic doesn't sell well, you still have to buy an ass load of this comic in order to get, you know, unlock. It's kind of like an un- unlocking system in, in uh, video games. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to pay so much to get... A new skin, if you will, for a comic, basically. Right, and, exactly. And, and here's the thing, too. You mentioned that you ran through the reasons why Marvel, you know, has has pretty much fallen for in terms of storytelling. Again, making Captain America a worldwide symbol, a Nazi and a Hydra agent. But here's another reasons why. Other reasons why Marvel is sales are down. 
Uh, you have tons of long-running events, including publisher-wide crossovers. You have Secret Wars is ending, which was constantly postponed way into the Marvel Now initiative. And now you have Secret Empire, which is about to roll out. And that's not just happening through Marvel's publishing. That's whole see this whole secret empire thing is going to branch out into marvel studios so it's a whole marvel wide initiative and we don't know how long that's going to go then you have marvel saying well guess what after secret empire we're going to wait 18 months for a new um, major event how about you pump the brakes on that and wait maybe three to five years before you do an event and actually let these uh, these comics breathe a little. I mean, for Christ's sakes, DC's doing it right because what we have this week come out, we have Batman number 20 and all these 20th issues. DC's letting these these comics breathe, as is Image, as is Vertigo, as is IDW and Aftershock and all these other publishers. Marvel, oh, once we get to eight fucking issues, going back to number ones again. Oh, we're yeah. going back to number ones, but guess what? They're not true number ones. They're going to have the legacy numbers now. Fuck you. Here's the other thing, too, man. I mean, I don't believe them for a second. Oh, neither do I. 18 months, I'll believe that when I see it. Second of all, you look at the Diamond distributor numbers from February of 2017, which I actually happen to have right in front of me here. The the diversity title, I I call it a diversity title for the sake of this discussion. Batwoman Rebirth number one was the highest ranking diversity title at 21st as far as quantity rank. Now, if you look at dollar rank versus quantity rank, Marvel is always a little bit of a tick ahead because guess what? Their books are way more expensive. Like Darth Maul number one was number one in quantity rank and dollar rank for February 2017. That's not surprising. X-Men Gold, which I reviewed on our website, I wrote a written review for, $5 for the book. And I will say this about X-Men Gold. In my review, I talk about how it's a decent book, and it looks that Marvel's going to be trying, at least Guggenheim's going to be trying to bring the X-Men back to what they were, but there are certain parts of it where I'm like, I will give it a couple issues, but Parmy can't see spending 4 to $5 on an okay series. Right. You know, and if, he, I, if I got to spend 4 to $5 on a book, it better blow me away. Right, exactly. And then if you look just beneath... Uh, Batwoman Rebirth number one. You've got Wonder Woman number sixteen up there. You've got a couple of Harley Quinn titles and another Wonder Woman title. And then you're you're scrolling, and the first Marvel diversity title is Elektra number one, City number thirty for quantity sales. But guess what? Dollar rank sales are number twenty. And why is that? Because Marvel's selling expensive books. You're not so the quantity sales don't quite add up. To the money sales, and hey, it's great for you. You're making money, but guess what? You're selling less books to make the money. And you know, any business person will say, "Hey, that's smart business strategy." Maybe it is if you want to make money, but you look long term. If I'm looking long term and I'm judging where we're going to be in a year, two years, whatever, I'm not looking at dollar rank sales. I'm looking at quantity rank sales. And as far as quantity rank sales outside of Star Wars, Marvel's getting their ass handed to them, and that should tell them more than anything else. And don't forget, too, another book that was, I believe, 50th ranked, I think it was like a 16 or 17 issue, was Green Lanterns, which has, of course, Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. Yep, rank at number 50. You can't get more diverse than that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, because not only are you hitting the the faith spectrum with Simon Baz being a a Muslim man, but you also have the Latin woman, the the Spanish woman, and Jessica Cruz. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, diversity is not the issue. People like diversity. 
James and I like reading books that have to do with diversity. But you know what we also like? We like stories that are good. We like art that doesn't make our eyes hurt. Here's the deal, man. And and I'm actually, I know you can't see me because this is a podcast. I'm actually, I have my head in my, my hands in my forehead, just pulling at my hair. Because, <laughs> okay, you want to make more money selling books. And, and DC, and I will relate this back to DC. So give me a second here. If you gave me Riri Williams as Iron Whatever, you know, call her whatever you want, Iron well, Heart, yeah, Iron whatever. Heart, they call her. If that's, but if that was the book, okay, if it wasn't Invincible Iron Man or whatever the hell it's called, if it wasn't that, if it was Iron Heart, and then you give me a Tony Stark-led Iron Man title, core title, I might buy them both. Because here's the deal. What did DC do in Rebirth? And I know you read both of these. They gave us a Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps book. Here's a book led by Hal Jordan. Because we know you love Hal. And then over here, here's Green Lanterns with Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz, which is also a Green Lantern story that's a little bit more diverse, a little bit more different that we think you might enjoy. And, and guess what? You personally, I know, read both Titles. And here's some other titles that DC does. They have Teen Titans, and then they have Titans. They have uh, Batman Beyond and Batman. They have Batman and Red Hood and the Outlaws. You see where I'm going here? You have Batgirl and Birds of Prey. Right. And let me relate this back to sales numbers here for a second, because you want to talk dollars and cents? We can do that. Okay, so let's say you're a Marvel reader, and you're buying a Tony Stark book, but not the Riri Williams book. But in DC, you're buying both Green Lantern titles because you enjoy both of them and you get the diver- a little bit of the diversity in one, you get the core title in the other. DC Rebirth books are usually $2.99 price point. I know some of them are going up to $3.99, but let's stick to $2.99 for a second. So you're making $6 off of one book as opposed to as a, off of two books as opposed to Marvel only making $5 off of the one book that people are buying. Would you rather make $6 or $5? Because if you're getting people to buy both books because they're good and because you're giving everybody what they want, I'm thinking I'd like rather make $6. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally, totally hear you on that one. I hope that Marvel understands what the real problem is here, and I hope they get to fixing it. But that's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Coming up next, we're going to be diving into the world of tabletop games and Atari because the head developer of those games, John Gilmore, is going to join us to talk everything Atari and tabletop coming up next. This is Aubrey Sitterson, writer of the G.I. Joe comic for IDW Publishing, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think anybody that has a Facebook or Twitter account knows how excited that Nick and I got when we heard about Atari coming to IDW Games in a tabletop version. And you know what? We haven't talked a whole lot of tabletop on the show, so we decided to go ahead and grab the guy that's going to be a part of the whole thing, game designer John Gilmore. John, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Now, John, I've got to ask you, tabletop games have kind of remained extremely popular, even in this tech-driven world. So in your opinion, as somebody who's been there, done that, what makes a great tabletop game? I think in modern gaming, it has to be really immersive experience. It has to really draw people in, and it helps to really you know, touch on the theme of the thing that you're trying to represent. It has to have the right feeling. 
And John, I think we can all agree at the core of any form of gaming is the various branches of communities that have spawned from them. Of course, you know, in virtual gaming, you have the creation and expansion of both esports and online gaming with League of Legends and stuff like that. So what ways have you seen the tabletop community grow and evolve since like the mid-90s and early 2000s? And where do you see it heading in the near future? Um, I mean, there's been a huge growth in conventions, things like uh, Gen Con, which has gotten bigger and bigger. Um, and they're, you know, great opportunities. There's, I think, a convention every week throughout the entire year somewhere in the United States. And that's just up and up. Attendance at Gen Con was over 60,000, I think, last year. Wow. So, oh. yeah, that's it's ridiculous how uh, popular tabletop gaming's got. And it's a lot of us are people who were really into video gaming, which, you know, I still am. I'm playing Zelda on my Switch and... You know, I love playing video games, but I would really miss that face-to-face tabletop experience. You know, people people crave that. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, when Nick and I heard about the announcement that IDW is going to be bringing a classic Atari games to tabletop, I mean, we were super excited. So, I mean, how does it feel for you, like you said, as a gamer, to actually bring those games to life in a different medium? Oh, I was I was hugely excited when they uh, first offered me the uh, project. You know, I grew up playing these games. I had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred uh, back in the day, so I mean, these were things that I was playing when I was four and five, and grew up, you know, throughout my formative years, and then moved on to Nintendo. So when they offered this opportunity, it was something I just couldn't say no. And, you know, some of the games that are going to be coming out in tabletop version in terms of the classic Atari games are Centipede, Missile Command, and Asteroids, and they're all part of that wonderful Atari brand. So as players like James, myself, and others jump from game to game and tabletop to tabletop, what are some of the unique and different experiences we can expect of these tabletop versions of these Atari classics? Well, we really want to focus on trying to do something a little bit different with each game, and we didn't want everything to just be an exact analog of the video game. Right. Uh, so with, with centipede, that's probably the, the most analog translation. And it's, you know, it's a very strategic two or four player. Uh, one player plays the gnome and the other player plays the centipede. And it's either, uh, in a two player, it's, you know, me versus you. And then in four player, it's a team of a gnome and a centipede going one direction and then against another team going the other direction. Nice. It's really asymmetric. So both the, uh, you know, the Atari, a lot of the games were single player experiences. So we want to try to make them more, uh, you know, interactive for the tabletop. So it's very asymmetric. The known player is doing something completely different than the centipede player. Um, and it really keeps it interesting as you switch positions, you know, you take turns playing them and you get a different game experience in both ones. And then um, in Asteroids, uh, it's a dexterity flipping game. So <laughs> in this one, one player, uh, players take turn, uh, one player is the ship, and then the rest of the players play the asteroid. <laughs> That's cool. <And> they're, they're... <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> so the asteroid players are trying to hit the ship, and the ship's trying to survive as long as they can. And you play until the ship player gets hit. And then you, the next person plays the ship and everybody else's asteroids, and you take turns and compare scores at the end of the game. Um, and, you know, we're aiming for, like, a 30- to 45-minute experience of that, so it's nice and compact, and 
it leaves you want to play another game of it rather than being, you know, really long and overstaying its welcome. And then Missile Command is a, it's an interesting entry-level negotiation game, which is one of my favorite types of games, where there's a lot of player interaction that's driven with all of us making deals with each other. So we each play our own nations that are launching missiles back and forth at each other. Huh. And you're launching missiles in these different lanes. So if I launch a missile at, uh, you know, you're the blue player, I launch a missile at you in lane two, and you launch a missile at me, our missiles will connect and blow each other up. But if one of us gets a missile through, then it blows up our city in the number two spot. So there's a little bit of prediction of trying to guess where the other players are going to shoot missiles. But then there's also a lot of negotiation and yelling about, uh, you know, well, I want to buy blue missiles from other players so that I can fire a whole bunch at you. Or I want to buy them up from the supply and like, give them to the other players to try to get them on my side against you. Huh. So it, it's, it, just, just hearing about that has kind of a very... Uh, the three games that point out to me with Missile Command were it's like a mixture of Risk, Battleship, and like Settlers of Katarn. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely... Um, we wanted to try to give all of them a very modern uh, board gaming sensibility. So trying to draw on stuff that's been happening in board games over the last few years was real important. Yeah, definitely. We're talking to John Gilmore, who's going to be designing the Atari tabletop games for IDW Games, which you do out in the fall of 2017. Now, John, I'll be honest, I love the games that were chosen. I also had a 2600 at a 7800 as well, but my go-to game on my 7800 was always Galaga. So I'm holding out hope. Now I'm going to ask you though, <laughs> as, as an Atari player, if you had an Atari in front of you right now, which cartridge do you reach for first? Uh, it has to be adventure for me. That was the one that I probably put the most hours into. And it was really one of the first, you know, video games that tried to tackle that genre. So, you know, going back, you know, a lot of those games don't hold up, but it for me, it was the one I spent the most hours on. And, John, strategy is key when it comes to tabletop games. And, however, there are some moves done by other players that leave us either scratching our heads in confusion or makes us so pissed that we just roll a 15, cast a, a black hole, and throw them in it forever. So, in all your years of playing tabletop games, what was the one most frustratingly dumb move you've encountered while playing? <laughs> oh, boy. Let me think. Um, the most frustration I've ever had in a board game is, you know, I, I try to really be positive about most of my experiences, um, but every now and then you'll just encounter a game where, it's just so luck based that nothing you do matters. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, games like that, where it's just roll the die and do a thing, just aren't, you know, they just don't motivate me. Like, I like, I like games that tell me a story while I play them, and I like games where I have a lot of control. So it's, right. it's tough for me to pick out a specific moment, but um, that really frustrates me. But anything like that just kind of rubs me the wrong way and leaves me not wanting to play that game again. I also saw on Twitter that you said you hate the what game are we going to play game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's my least favorite game. Like, if we're, you know, meeting up for a day or an evening of playing games, like, I just want somebody to pick something that's gonna, that they're going to enjoy to play. But, you know, having a group of people and nobody can decide on what game. And, I, and part of it's the problem with having too big of a collection sometimes. You know, if you're, if you're selecting from, like, 500 games, it's a lot tougher than if you have 
you know, five or six. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, well, you've got so many, you've got a couple of other exciting projects coming up as well. So that'll make the choices even harder. So why don't you uh, give us a minute and uh, tell us a little bit about Dinosaur Island. Uh, Dinosaur Island just ended on Kickstarter. We raised just over a half, uh, 500,000, so almost half a million. Wow. Or a little bit over. And it's a dinosaur theme park building game. So each player is building a theme park. Um, in a world where we clone, are able to clone dinosaurs and fill our theme parks with them. Um, and you're trying to the most exciting theme park out of all the dinosaur theme parks between the players. And it's a light uh, entry-level worker placement game. So it kind of draws on things like Agricola and Stone Age, which are some other kind of lighter entry-level games, still having a lot of strategic depth and replayability, which are super important to me. You'll be able to pre-order it at Pandasaurus. Uh, games.com hopefully in the next couple weeks or through your Fender local game store. Alright, cool. And going back to IDW, they have a lot of famous titles in their arsenal when it comes to their comics. They have Transformers, G.I. Joe, Turtles, just to name a few. If you can make a tabletop version of any IDW property, which one would it be and why? Oh man, it's a conversation I've had with those guys quite a few times. Um, and sometimes it's tough to get those licenses. Right. Um, I, I would love to do a Ninja Turtles game just because I grew up with them, but they just came out with the big tabletop one last year, and it's fantastic. Nice. I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if I could do something better than that Ninja Turtles game is the problem. Nick, I think we need to talk so to. Uh, I think we need to talk to Bo Smith about a Winona Earp tabletop game. That'd be that'd be pretty yeah. amazing. That'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> well, I know that they're. Yeah, gonna... that that would be fantastic. That's such a good comic. And and the and the season two is coming back in June, so you know we talk to Bo, we get a tabletop version of it to come out here after that sometime. I mean, hey, it just works out. I think. <laughs> it comes yeah, that'd own, be perfect. In, inside, like one of the pieces is like a Doc Holiday mustache. It's, it'd be great. <laughs> I would play yeah, the, the as Doc the Doc Holiday first player mustache. I yeah. would play. I would play as the mustache. You know, like how you have the Monopoly pieces, you just play as yeah. the mustache yeah. all the time. Yeah, you have, to, you have to have a mustache token in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's your power boost that's your power boost token right there <laughs> exactly <laughs> plus five mustache <laughs> there you go <laughs> well we are so excited for these coming out idw game is going to release the tabletop versions of the atari classics asteroids missile command and centipede in the fall of 2017 you can go to idwgames.com for the latest info and john where can they catch uh, any other info and any other games that you're going to be doing you can always follow me on Twitter at, at John Gilmore, J-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-U-R. That's the best place to keep up with me. IDW Games as well uh, is another great place to keep up on those series. Absolutely. We're so excited to finally, finally, finally be talking about tabletop games here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think we found the right guy. John Gilmore, thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks a ton for having me today. It was great. You know, James, when I think of tabletop games, the first thing that comes to my mind is just... When I would spend time at my dad's house, and every Sunday when my dad would wake up, he'd have me go to the closet downstairs where I had all my board games. I had probably about 10, 12 board games. And he's like, go pick one out. So every Sunday morning, my dad and I would play some sort of board game, and that's where my love of tabletop games pretty much grew. So where did yours grow, man? Man, I got to tell you, it's for me, it takes me back to New Year's Eve because we used to have big family gatherings on New Year's Eve. 
And more often than not, it would end up being a tabletop game battle, you know, it didn't matter what game it was. And sometimes, you know, you play multiple games and, you know, it starts to get loud and everybody gets competitive and it's, it's just a lot of fun, man. So that's kind of where my memories always go when I turn to tabletop gaming, but to know how popular it still is. And that's, I I just think it's cool that that's not an experience that my son's going to not get to have just because of how tech-driven the world is right now. And I think it's important, too, that, you know, we are in a very tech-driven world in terms of gaming, as I mentioned, you know, the whole League of Legends community and stuff like that, and esports. And honestly, there's a nice simplicity to tabletop games. There's a nice uh, community of coming together, you know? It's like, hey, let's get myself, you, and, like, a couple of our friends together, you know, whereas... You don't have that mass, like thousands and thousands of people getting together for one game. It's like, no, you have a nice little, you know, community, nice little, you know, kids that live in like three houses, get together, play a board game, stuff like that. And I think that's really cool because, you know, you get the the kind of funny frustrations and stuff like that, especially in games where you have to roll dice and stuff. And I know a game that, you know, a a board game that I had uh, massive frustrations with was, was Trouble because... You couldn't roll a dice. You had to pop the goddamn yep. bubble, yep. and it always and I'd be like, I always need like, okay, I need like a six. And the problem with it was it was in the bubble, so the corner would get caught on it, and then you had to have that one friend that would turn the bubble because you could rotate it, yep. and the dice would be like it would roll into a number I didn't need or I couldn't use. And that's like you're just a dick. <laughs> I used to play a game called Aggravation, and it was very, very simple in design, but let me tell you right now, that description was apt, because there was a thing in the middle of the board where if you got there, you could skip like halfway across the board and get to where you needed to be ten times faster, but right. you could only, it was only like a specific number that you rolled to get out of there, so that was the catch, and if you landed on somebody else's piece, you could kick them all the way back to the beginning. So, yeah, Aggravation, definitely aptly named. Thank you very much for that. And just really quickly, one thing I want to talk about, too, is, you know, John mentioned that, hey, these games are going to be based around, you know, short periods of time. So, you know, 40, 45 minutes tops, basically. So you can go game to game and stuff like that. Not, you know, now you're playing Monopoly and you're playing three, four hours, you know, of Monopoly and stuff like that. And I like that, you know, it's, it's quick, mm-hmm. you can play multiple games, and plus, you know, how, you know, people from various ages and all ages are very competitive, so it's like, best of three, best of five, you know yep. what I mean? Going back to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, death, best out of three, you know, best out of five, you know? Right. So I think that that's, that's really cool that you can get in and out of games really, really fast. Speaking of, speaking of getting in and out of things, we're getting out of this podcast, outside of this episode of the Down Nerdy Podcast. We're putting it to a close. Again, thanks to John for coming on, talking about the whole Atari line and everything that's happening at IDW Games. We're so excited about what's coming our way. And hey, if you want more of us, be sure to hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter, downandnerdy757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch, all at Merc with one arm. And I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. You can find out all kinds of information, too, on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out more about Nick and I. You can find out all about the stuff that we talked about on this week's show. And you can actually follow along with the show. Listen to the show on the This Week section. You can follow along with each thing and find out more information about the comics we've reviewed. All kinds of stuff at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pack safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.